Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 19 of Chris's on Infinite Earths here at the Chris and Reggie channel. You can usually hear this program every other Wednesday at chrisandreggie.com, chrisandreggie.podbean.com, iTunes, Stitcher, blah, 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 blah. Uh, this is uh, just coming one week after the last episode. Uh, I won't call it a bonus because at the end of the day, it's still something that contains my voice, and uh, <laughs> I would never... Uh, characterize something with my voice uh, as a bonus in any uh, shape, form, or fashion. Uh, now today, it's kind of a continuation of the discussion we had last week, um, but with a with special uh, emphasis placed on uh, profundity, uh, moments of profundity, uh, these moments in your life that uh, it might not be uh, clear at first that are, are going to wildly change the direction of your life. Um, worth noting, we're also going to be going to be discussing Flashpoint number one from 2011, but uh, not for the reasons you're thinking. Uh, has nothing to do with the, uh, you know, all the stuff that we'll be getting into soon. <laughs> um, now this, like I said, is a continuation of the story that I was telling last week. Uh, uh, if you didn't hear that episode, um, it was a basically a story of uh, me losing my job, losing my home, uh, just a really, really rough time in uh, uh, my family's life, and we we came out of it okay, and uh, as if you heard the, the episode last week, you can attest to that, but uh, this is kind of the next step of that. Um, now, that story ended in 2010, this is, of course, 2011. And uh, before we get into the you know the nitty gritty of this here, uh, at, and at the risk of being maybe a little too cute by half, or uh, perhaps a little uh, uh, '90s vertigo precious, uh, <laughs> I want to take a minute and just uh, consider the fact that uh, right now I'm talking into a microphone, and you are hearing the words that I'm speaking into a microphone. And if we take a step back and just think about all of the twists and turns, not only in our lives, but in the lives of everyone who came before us, you know, uh, the fact that we're having this little audio visit right now, um, it, it's not something that you would bet a penny on. I mean, it's, it's a statistical impossibility if you take into account thousands of years and hundreds of generations of decisions and ideas and moments, uh, both profound and ordinary. For a lot of those, uh, it's only with the benefit of hindsight that you know which are which. You don't know that a moment that you're living right now is going to be profound or if it's going to be something you'll forget, just a moment, you know, just a one of thousands of moments you have in a given time. Now, the story that I'm going to share with you today is about one of those moments that uh, profoundly changed my life. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, uh, but when I look back at the past nearly decade of my life, it all comes down to this one day in the summer of 2011. And again, no, this has nothing to do with Flashpoint or the New 52. So uh, I'm not quite that uh, obsessed with uh, comic books, I suppose. But uh, last week, we discussed uh, the curse of being overqualified for jobs. Uh, because when I was out of work, and I'm sure this is a story a lot of us can tell, one of the ways you can be let down easily 
by a uh, hiring person is to be told that you're overqualified. You're too qualified. You're too good for this job, which I mean, I, I, I mean, it's like kissing your sister, you know, it's not, it, it's not anything that makes you feel all that great. It's just, uh, it's you, you, especially after you hear it for the, you know, dozenth time, you realize it's just something that people say to make you not feel horrible about leaving a room without a job. Now, I found a job in the spring of 2011, and uh, it was one that I shouldn't have gotten because I got the you're overqualified. And it was only because a friend uh, of the family worked at this company, and he convinced uh, the company to take a chance on me. And it was only a temporary job anyway, so, uh, you know, (laughs) it wasn't like they needed me there for life. And uh, for getting me in the door, I owe my buddy Nick a uh, great deal of thanks. Uh, while I was at this job, I met a lot of great people, uh, had, a, had a lot of good times. But uh, the job in question, I was a windshield repair technician for a large windshield uh, repair and replacement firm. Uh, if you think about all the windshield repair folks out there, you're probably thinking of the one I worked for. Uh, you might be familiar with their very, very annoying jingle. Now, I worked for this company, and uh, my job was driving around uh, the greater Phoenix area and sometimes way, way out of Phoenix, and I would uh, go to folks' homes, uh, places of business, uh, schools, anywhere, and I would uh, repair chips in windshields. You see, uh, Arizona is, you know, no pun intended, it's a hotbed for uh, windshield repairs because of the... uh, the incredible heat. Um, you know, glass is a liquid that thinks it's a solid, and so it's always kind of on a vibration or vibrational plane, you know, and if you try to repair a portion of it and it's kind of wobbling, there's a good possibility that uh, it, it, you know, the repair won't take and you'll wind up actually destroying the windshield. Um, we might talk more about that later. I, I don't know where this story's even going just yet. But, uh, now, the thing of this was, I, um, I was, you know, I was given a, a car that I was able to take home, and I drove to locations, I made repairs, met people, had conversations, and, um, you know, you get to realize that, you know, I, I, I was always in level, like, various levels of management, um, human resources, quality assurance, stuff like that, and, uh, was hadn't been you know a pair of boots on the floor for quite a while. So when you are a you know a pair of boots on the ground, uh, working and and representing a company to a customer base or clientele, uh, you're treated differently. You know you're treated as as someone providing a service because you are in fact providing a service, and it's a uh, it's kind of a tough thing to swallow. Um, at least it was for me, because I was accustomed to having a title, you know, like a a management level title. I had people who reported to me, whereas this was me reporting to someone and, you know, reporting not only to, you know, upstream management but outside customers. So, very, uh, very much culture shock for me, and. Uh, Further shock was the fact that, I mean, this is Phoenix, Arizona, the Arizona area, and it's a, 
it's, you know, it can get to 115, degrees outside. And, uh, you know, I'm repairing car windshields, which means I'm outside a lot. And uh, windshields can, you know, if you've ever touched your windshield or touched your dashboard or hurt or burnt your hands on your steering wheel when you get in the car in the summer, just imagine if, if, if you're not in Arizona, just be, be thankful you're not in Arizona for the summer. Uh, windshields get extremely hot, uh, painfully, painfully hot. And uh, uh, probably the, the most difficult part of the job was uh, having to regulate temperature of a windshield. So if I come upon a windshield that's 180 degrees, I have to make it drop to 80 degrees before I can work on it. Because like I mentioned, you know, glass is always kind of grooving a bit, you know, it's always moving. And, uh, the way that we repaired them was by attaching a vacuum, uh, to, to the crack and then injecting a, uh, plasticine resin. So it's, uh, you know, different chemicals meeting and sometimes they get along and, uh, sometimes they don't. Uh, but when it's hot, it increases the possibility or the probability that it, uh, that it won't work out all that well. And, uh, and I, I did break <laughs> my fair share of uh, windshields, and it's it's never a good time. It's really not. Um, probably the best part of the job was the fact that I was on the road. I had never been on the road before. I'd always been in offices, but uh, having the uh, you know the ability to just be on the road, it was uh, where I where I first got really, really into listening to podcasts. And, uh, unfortunately it's also where I got burnt out <laughs> on a lot of podcasts, but, uh, you know, you have several hours in a car and, uh, yeah, who wants to listen to the radio? It's, you know, the same, same five or six songs, or, uh, if you go over to the talk radio stations, it's all the same voice anyway. Um, so I started to listen to podcasts and, uh, I was driving an old, Van, an old, uh, I think it was a, a Ford Econoline van, and you know, no Bluetooth uh, technology in this rig. So uh, I stopped at a gas station and bought a little can speaker uh, to attach to my phone, and I had it sitting in my uh, cup holder. So I, <laughs> all the shows I listened to were uh, staticky, and uh, it, it wasn't a fun listening experience, but it, it sure beat the radio. So there was that. Um, now, the day in question that we're going to be discussing is, uh, well, it's the day that uh, Flashpoint number one came out. Um, I would stop at uh, the, the cool thing, and I don't know if this is everywhere, but uh, what we have, uh, at least out here, is on Wednesdays, a lot of the comic shops open very early in the morning. So uh, on your way to work, you could actually stop and pick up your comics. And uh, I mean, this might be something that's everywhere, but I, I'm not a very worldly fellow, so <laughs> you'll have to pardon my ignorance. Um, I would stop before my first call at uh, Atomic Comics, a shop that has since closed down, actually closed down uh, the week that Flashpoint ended. Uh, the week that Flashpoint ended and Justice League number 1 came out, they were gone. But uh, I stopped in and I picked up my pile of books. And uh, my jobs, I live... In like a, a northwest of Phoenix, and all of my jobs were in East Phoenix, Scott, the Scottsdale, Arizona area. If uh, folks are familiar with Scottsdale, you know uh, what to expect from Scottsdale. If you're not, uh, they uh, it's a uh, 
uh, upper middle class place. Um, a lot of wealthy folks there. Uh, from personal experience, a lot of really nice folks there. But uh, it's also known for being a place where the self-important go, <laughs> you know. And it's a, it has a, a bit of a uh, it has a bit of a cachet to it. To say you live or work in Scottsdale, it's a it's something people are are proud of, uh, at least out here. And uh, so many of my jobs were in Scottsdale, and I became you know familiar with the roads, familiar with a lot of the people. You have repeat customers, and it, you know I never really had a problem with people. But it was uh, on this day that I had a job, and I had to check in with a person who worked at a doctor's office. And uh, it wasn't a doctor; it was a uh, it was a receptionist at the doctor's office. And uh, you know, just to go back a step here, I mentioned that that when you're a service provider, uh, sometimes people don't look at you; they kind of look past you. You're just you know, you're just there to do a job. You're not, you're not even worth uh, greeting or saying hello to. Or, and that, that does not happen often, or it didn't happen often to me. Usually it was a very, uh, a very polite and uh, fun discussion with somebody. You know, I'd, you'd meet new people every day. And uh, since you were doing something for them, they were, you know, more often than not, they were nice to you. Um, on the rare occasion, just like anywhere, you're, you're going to meet a jerk or two. Which brings us back to that doctor's office. Now, it might not be evident through listening to my voice, but I'm a fairly smiley guy. You know, I, uh, if I'm walking past you in a store and we, our eyes meet, I'll probably smile. If, uh, if a unfamiliar car drives down my block, I'm probably going to wave. You know, it's just something I do. You know, I'm just, and that, that's not special. It's what most people do. So I go into this doctor's office, and as soon as the door shuts behind me, I'm smacked in the chest with what felt like three pounds of keys. Just uh, keys hurled at my chest, and they bounce off my chest and they hit the ground. And I, I was just... I didn't know what was going on. I just looked around, and uh, and finally I see someone who didn't even look up at me. This uh, woman behind the counter who said, Blue Lexus, around the back, didn't even look at me. Did not even try to make eye contact. She just saw my shirt <laughs> That's, that, uh, that it identified me as the windshield repair guy, and she hurled her keys at me. And I wasn't prepared, so they bounced off my chest and they hit the ground. And uh, I was just dumbfounded, gobsmacked. And uh, a woman, another woman from behind the counter ran out and was so apologetic. And she picked up the keys for me, handed them to me, and very, very apologetic. But this other woman wouldn't even look. And uh, it was just really, really eye-opening. So I, you know, I go around back, I do the repair, and, uh, yeah, you know, I, I I was just so flabbergasted. I'd never been dismissed in such a way, and it, and it really bothered me. It, it hurt, because this was a job that I wasn't built for, you know, I... I'm not really a guy who's going to be outside in 110, 120-degree weather, but uh, I had to be, and... Just the fact that I was in extreme discomfort most of the day 
to have someone just dismiss me, I really, really got to me. It really got to me, and uh, I, I just was unable to react. I was, like, dull the entire day. And uh, that, that afternoon, um, I pulled into another home to uh, do a repair and talked to the customer on the line, and they weren't home yet. And they told me they'd be home in about a half hour. And I asked if it was okay if I just waited in their driveway. And they said it was cool. And that is where I read Flashpoint number one. (laughs) That very same day. I was in a dirt driveway up in New River, Arizona. Which is a a handful of miles north of uh, the Phoenix metro area. It's uh, off the beaten path. But uh, that whole day I just had this one encounter... That I had with this uh, dismissive receptionist eating at the back at, in the back of my mind, and uh, it really, really shook me. Um, and it was from there that I decided that I was going to go back to school. I wanted to do something that, you know, you know, when you lose a job, um, you know, you feel like something's been taken from you, you know. Um, I lost that one job that we discussed last week, and, uh, I had gone from temp job to temp job to temp job. All of them were taken away, as I knew they would be. And this job with the windshield repair company was also temporary, so it was going to be taken away from me as well. And, uh, I wanted something that nobody could take away from me. And, uh, the only way I could do that is by getting a degree, because nobody can take a degree from you once you earn it. Um, so this one moment that I didn't realize was going to change the direction of my life actually wound up changing the direction of my life. And I spent the next six years of my life, uh, working and going to school, uh, until I finally earned my, uh, BS in psychology. And, uh, again, no pun intended there either. But, uh, you know, you think back, or I think back, and, you know, I'd like to see this woman again just to shake her hand, just to thank her, <laughs> you know, for uh, giving me the kick in my pants that I, I, I suppose I needed. And the uh, couple of years leading up to this, uh, you know, it felt like I was constantly getting my butt kicked. This lady kicked me square in the teeth, you know? <laughs> I was used to getting kicked in the butt, but... Uh, this one just, uh, this one was right in my face, or in my chest, literally, but it was the first time that I had, uh, actually felt, you know, the thing, when you, when you do find yourself, uh, in need, you try to surround yourself with people who don't treat you like you're in need, they treat you normal, they treat you like you always have been treated, uh, you're never, you're never treated as less than, even if you're the you know the one member of the family who can't afford to buy Christmas gifts, you're never treated as less than anyone else there. And uh, this woman, uh, who I've never seen since, <laughs> never seen before, she treated me less than. And uh, it was the first time after months and years of just having my face rubbed in the dirt that I felt less than someone else. And, uh, <laughs> the fact, the fact of the matter was, I mean, I was probably making more money than she was 
at the time, which just is crazy to think of because, I mean, I was working, she was working, we probably were at a very similar level. But, you know, there is that stereotype about Scottsdale. Now, I apologize for going on as long as I did. I hope, uh, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed what there was of this discussion, but, uh, I suppose we'll pop over to the horns and uh, we will take a look at Flashpoint number one. So Flashpoint number one. This was the 700th daily discussion over at Chris's on InfiniteEarths.com. We covered this one on Saturday, December 30th, 2017. Jumping into the issue, Flashpoint number one, July 2011 cover date. Story is called... Quite appropriately, Flashpoint, Chapter 1 of 5. Written by Jeff Johns, pencils Adam Cubitt, inks Sandra Hope, colorist Alex Sinclair, letters uh, Nick J. Napolitano, editors Adam Schlagman and Rex Ogle, or Ogle, and executive editor Eddie Berganza. This one hits us with a $3.99 cover price. Now we open, and if it wasn't already clear from the title, this is going to be a Flash story. We get a quick and dirty on Barry's childhood and his relationship with his mother. Also, her murder and his uh, later chemical enlightening bath. From there, we get an even quicker and dirtier look at his adulthood. His his marriage to Iris, the formation of the Flash family, including uh, one of the few times we see Wally's daughter and her impulse duds. uh, uh, Was it Irie? She uh, actually took the impulse name towards the end of the pre-Flashpoint DCU. Now we pop into the present and Barry is shaken awake at the precinct. Turns out that Miss Alchemy is on the loose, and Central City's greatest hero, Citizen Cold, is on the case. Huh. Uh, if you think we're confused here, uh, maybe you take a look at Barry. He's uh, a little out of it as well. Uh, he offers that Captain Cold is a member of the Rogues. Unfortunately, the Rogues is a group that nobody's heard of here. Our man rushes off to check on what's going down, and he finds that he's not moving quite as quickly or as gracefully than he used to. He trips, falls down a flight of stairs, and he lands at the feet of his mother. After after a reunion scene, which I'm sure is supposed to be far more touching and emotional than it appears, Barry reveals to his mother that he is the Flash. And get this, she never heard of him. Other things Nora has no clue about, the Justice League or Superman. She does know Batman, though, because, come on, you think Batman ain't going to be front and center during a DC event? Come on. Now, sticking with Batman for a minute, we catch him rooftop chasing a colorful character named Yo-Yo, who is an associate of the Joker who has just kidnapped Judge Dent's twins. Hmm. Now, anyway... She tells Batman that the kids are likely already dead, and so he tosses her off the edge of the building. Lucky for her, she lands in Cyborg's waiting arms. Batman didn't appear to know he was there, though, so I'm guessing he thought she was just going to hit the ground and be done. Now, Vic is there because they need Batman's help, and it's here that we meet hologram versions of all the heavy hitters of this here Flashpoint universe. We've got, like, the, the, the Captain Marvel crew. we got some of the Secret Seven, the Outsider. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, quite a crew. Jump back to Barry for a bit. He decides to pop in on Iris before heading to dinner with his mother. Nora isn't familiar with 
anyone named Iris and asks if it's uh, just a new friend of his. Inside the offices of the Central City Citizen, we see that Iris has already got herself a man. Barry ain't trying to hear that, see? So he runs back outside, just as old Nora is briefly greeted by a familiar-looking yellow and red blur. Barry asks if he can borrow his mother's car because he's gotta get. Back in Gotham, the heroes of the Flashpoint universe continue their hologram conference. They discuss how they might work together to fight off the warring Amazons and Atlanteans. It's here that we learn that Aquaman and Wonder Woman aren't all that friendly in the here and now. Oh yeah, also, uh, Western Europe isn't a thing anymore. Well, I mean, that's not entirely true, it's just not a thing that's above sea level anymore. Now, the Flashpointers are a ragtag bunch of characters, and they don't seem to get along all that well. They understand the threat before them, but still don't entirely trust one another to do the right thing. Rack Shade's Secret Seven put it to a vote, and they all agree to throw in. Then, the Batson clan decide to defer to Captain Thunder. He appears wearing a scarred, at the hands of Wonder Woman, face, and so he's down to throw down on Diana. Batman, however, he still ain't convinced. He informs Cyborg of his chances before splitting. The holograms are rightfully annoyed, and Vic is left all by his lonesome. We rejoin Barry as he's entering Gotham City. He heads directly to Wayne Manor, and he finds it in complete disrepair. He makes his way past the grandfather clock and into the Batcave, which is also comparably desolate. It's not long before Barry finds himself jumped by Batman. He tries to talk him down by referring to him as Bruce, and uh, let me tell you, it doesn't work out all that well. Batman informs our man that Bruce is dead. It's now that Barry realizes he's talking to a different Wayne altogether, that being Bruce's father, Thomas. Now here's the thing about Flashpoint. Um... As a story, I really enjoyed it. Um, if I were able to take all the uh, my new 52 sour grapes out of the equation, uh, this was uh, a very well-told story, in my opinion. I, I have not read the entire thing since it's come out, but I have looked at the first couple of issues. Now, for, as an event, I mean, this is a pretty interesting study. It feels a bit like Marvel's House of M that came out in the mid-2000s. Um, and while nothing will ever convince me that the New 52 was, you know, the plan all along, I don't doubt for a second that Flashpoint was always set to shake up the status quo a bit. Uh, if we look at House of M, that ended with uh, the Scarlet Witch saying no more mutants, which uh, managed to change the Marvel landscape for years. Uh, I, I think they might still be dealing with uh, some of that. Uh, I couldn't tell you from personal experience. Uh, now, I'm sure that Flashpoint would have had similar results before uh, the big edict that everything is getting, you know, a, a ground ground up redo uh, came down from an editorial or whoever. Now, the mystery we get here is pretty well crafted, and it manages to touch on some very uncomfortable situations for Barry. I mean, we can look at his loss of speed, because, you know, at this point, his ability to run is second nature, and now... It's gone. Then we have him reuniting with his mother, and it's uh, it's uneasy. You know, he, I, I'm, I'm sure he's happy to see her, uh, but he knows that uh, something ain't entirely right with the situation because it's not supposed to be this way. Then we also have uh, the mention of Iris, who is no longer Barry's wife, and in fact never ever was. You kind of get that Twilight Zone vibe. Um, 
But if you are, you know, if you have a history with Barry Allen, I, I suppose this would be pretty riveting. Uh, now, the Flashpoint heroes, eh, you know, <laughs> their characters, uh, their redesigns, reimaginings, they're, they're pretty cool, but at the same time, kind of an afterthought just for this chapter. Um, they're facilitating the... One thing that I, I really disliked about this entire Flashpoint endeavor, uh, not including the New 52, of course, is the... Just the ton of the glut of miniseries that they dropped on us that summer. It's, uh, I have my own theories on that. I, I think DC wanted us to buy those Flashpoint series to make the ongoing titles sales dip. So then when Fla- when the new 52 hit, the, the, it would be an even bigger difference in who was buying what. Uh, that's just me being a, a conspiracy theorist, I suppose, but... This did feel like, hey, let's dump a bunch of characters in this first issue so people will run out and get all these miniseries. And I, I think I bought the first month's worth and then just realized, eh, no, I don't need them anymore. Um, I did enjoy Cyborg taking the lead here. I thought that was cool. And at this point, we'd already seen a lot of the New 52 promotional ish images, so we knew that uh, Vic was going to be a member of the Justice League. Uh, even, you know, becoming a founder of the Justice League. Uh, so I really didn't see a problem giving him a bit of a, a shine in this story. And, uh, you know, I, I still really, I'm not a fan of him as a Justice League guy. I, he'll always be a titan to me, but, uh, you know, that that's neither here nor there. Uh, the Thomas Wayne reveal at the end, uh, I, I don't know if this was that much of a shock back in the day. I can't remember. Uh, I'm struggling to remember how much of this was spoiled for us because... As with anything in the comics industry, uh, we've got our vaunted comics journalists clawing and climbing over one another so they could break things first. So it doesn't matter what bits of story, what bits of narrative get ruined, just as long as their name's on the byline and not the other site, they, they're okay with it. Um, one of the things I thought would be really cool here, and this has nothing to do with this issue, but I thought it would be really neat to have uh, this end with... Thomas uh, Wayne meeting the real Batman and having, you know, a touching, if not a little weird, reunion with him, only to have it revealed at the end that Thomas actually met Dick Grayson, who, you know, he was also Batman around this time. I thought that could have been interesting, you know, where he could be telling Bruce all the things he wanted to tell him and Bruce, or, but, but, and he could hand over the letter if, if need be, but, uh, it would never have happened because he was talking to the wrong guy. Uh, of course, that's all moot <laughs> at this point. Now, if we look at this as a simple sh- status quo shakeup, as I'm you know, 99.9% sure it was originally intended to be, I don't think I would have had any problems with this. Uh, a thing with comics fans, we get a pretty bad rap. We're always told, we're told every time a change is made that we hate change. And I look back at my entire collecting history, 30-plus years at this point, there's never been a time where there wasn't change. Everything's, every month somebody is breaking new ground or, or you know, everything we thought we knew was wrong or this creator's going over to this comic company. It's, there's change constantly in comics, but yet comics fans are still yelled at for not wanting change or not being able to deal with change. I don't know. I mean, at this point, there really is no status quo. <laughs> and I don't think there's been one in quite a while, but uh, 
and we you know we take we we take the punches as they come i guess but you know without going too much further on a tangent is flashpoint worth reading uh, probably yeah it's a good story it's got great art um would i still recommend it if we were still in the new 52 i, I don't know <laughs> I don't know where I'd be as a reader or a uh, commentator on comics if that were still the case. Um, Now, for what it is, I'd say it's worth at least a flip through. Um, You can get it in any way possible. I mean, there's it's been collected, it's digital, all over the place. Um, Actually, you can also get like the Flashpoint Companion for free digitally. So there's stuff there. Um, I think there's even been an animated uh, movie. Based on this, but I, I couldn't tell you one thing about it. But it's there for you if you're looking for it. Alrighty, well I considered skipping the hot take this time out, but uh, I decided what the heck. Let's do a uh, let's let's do another letters page here. But this time it's not going to be Action Comics Weekly. So uh, if you were thinking about hitting the stop button, you you don't have to now. Uh, <laughs> this one I'm doing because. Uh, next week, I'm going to be, uh, they're going to release an episode of the Source Material Podcast where I discuss the Doom Patrol. Uh, I go through the entire history of the team, uh, and we discuss the first arc of the Young Animal uh, Gerard Way run. So, one of the things you always harken back to, or at least I always harken back to when I talk Doom Patrol, is the Grant Morrison run. I mean, that's uh, the one that a lot of us go back to. So I thought it would be cool to take a look at the letters page, the Doomsayers letters page from Doom Patrol number 23, June 1989. And these are letters discussing Doom Patrol volume 2 number 19, which was the first Grant Morrison issue. We're going to start with a letter from Jim in New York. He says, Dear Robert, and uh, I'm guessing that's Robert Greenberger, he says, As someone who had high hopes for the new Doom Patrol and then watched their series falter through misdirection. I'm very excited about Grant Morrison's debut on the series in DP number 19. His work on Animal Man is nothing short of brilliant, and I'm sure that it's only a matter of time before he hits his stride on this book also. The team needs to be reestablished, and although it was because of death, I'm glad the old membership is being pared down. Without a doubt, Cliff should be the heart of the group, a la Nightwing in Teen Titans, and I'm glad to see him still featured prominently. Likewise, Larry Trainer and the Negative Being are synonymous with the Doom Patrol and shouldn't leave. Tempest and Rhea are good characters, but neither ever, ever had a legitimate reason for sticking with the group. I suggest you re- relegate them to guest appearances and try to find them another outlet. Rhea is a perfect candidate for the new Teen Titans or Infinity Inc., Crazy Jane looks like a promising addition, and linking Doc Magnus closely to the DP was a perfect move. I'm not too sure the team needs the Chief anymore, and his leadership may be something to question later on down the road. Also, this team functions best out of the mainstream, and it's not too far-fetched to have them become the National Enquirer of Superheroes. I wish all involved the best in resurrecting this book and elevating it to excellence. And our uh, editor replies with, The new creative team and direction have met with nearly unanimous praise, as you will note from the rest of the mail on these pages. I'd have run a negative opinion had one been received, so I guess we're doing something right. But now, for one of our harsher critics, and this is Frank from Address Withheld. He says, 
Aside from Steve Lytle's pencils, I didn't care for the first four issues of Doom Patrol. My main objections were the returns of supposedly dead heroes and Gary Martin's inks. I think Gary's work looks good over that of many pencilers, but not over Steve's. Also, Paul Kupperberg's plots never excited me. Anyway, Doom Patrol 19 was my first issue in over a year. I'm not going to tell you that I absolutely love the New Direction or use any other hyperbole. I will say that the series is improving and that I'll stick around for an issue or two to see what happens. The cover for issue 19 was nothing special. Both artists involved seem capable of better stuff, judging from their interior work. I understand that with a new direction you want to have a new logo, but I prefer the previous one to the new one. Please consider going back. As far as Grant Morrison's writing is concerned, his dialogue skill is rather good. Encourage him, however, to take advantage of the now non-newsstand distribution of the book to use realistic, colorful dialogue when appropriate. Well, be careful what you ask for there, Frank. Uh, Richard Case is a good visual storyteller, but unfortunately, like many of the newer pencilers now working at DC, his work is neither particularly stylish nor, therefore, exciting. Though less experienced, however, I find his work superior to Eric Larson's. Carlos Garzon did excellent inks on this issue, and I hope new inker Scott Hanna works as well. I don't know much about the Scissor Men yet, but I hope they aren't as silly as their name sounds. What I suggest for this series are bizarre but more serious villains. An antagonist like Shrapnel or the Outsider's Duke of Oil doesn't quite fit into a series with the more somber overtones of Doom Patrol. As I mentioned earlier, I am very disturbed by the resurrection of dead characters in this book. Terra is dead and the Titans continue strong. Barry Allen is dead and Wally West continues. A a death of a superhero or a team, be it the Phoenix or Doom Patrol, is not only chronicled, but becomes the starting point for endless storylines and becomes a landmark in the history of that particular comics universe. And then new writers and editors, or even the original personnel, rewrite history, as it were. I'm sorry if this offends you, but it seems to be catering to your lowest common denominator as opposed to more sophisticated fans who want more inventive plotting. Let such deaths be permanent, and let them, en- and let them encourage, if not require you, to be even more creative. Wow, Frank, I hope you're not reading comics these days. I mean, death is a Tuesday for a lot of these guys here. Guys and gals, I guess. Um, Now, the reply from uh, Mr. Greenberger says, Good to hear from you again, Frank, after far too long. Your comments are well considered, but trust me, I'm not about to resurrect Rita Farr or Scott Fisher. I fully believe in letting characters remain dead. After all, I got here in time to participate in Crisis on Infinite Earths, and after four years, not a single death has been reversed. Oh, boy. You will also be pleased by the bizarre, literary-minded villains upcoming, and not a single silly one in the bunch. Except for that one that hunts beards. Uh, The verdict is pretty positive on the logo, so you'll have to suffer with the new one, designed by our very own Kez Wilson. Now, the beard hunter, uh... It's a silly story, but it's a good story. It's one I remember fondly. Uh, I just don't think our buddy Frank would be uh, too keen on it, especially uh, with uh, he wants the more somber <laughs> characters. Um, now, our next letter comes to us from Bud in Chicago. And this one's going to have a page turn in it, so you'll hear that. It says, Dear Mr. Greenberger, 
After nearly two decades of comics collecting, I finally feel compelled to write a letter of comment. It's three in the morning, and I've just finished reading Doom Patrol number 19. When I heard that Paul Kupperberg would be leaving the series, I was a bit worried about what the new creative team would do. I now see that I had nothing to worry about. The issue overall was well done, concisely recapping the events from Invasion and setting up plot lines for future issues. But what compels me to write is the scene on pages 11 and 12. This is, was easily the most emotionally powerful scene I'd read in the past six months at least. I could feel Cliff's pain and anguish radiating right off the pages at me. In these days of overly melodramatic mutant angst, this kind of writing is a fr- breath of fresh air. Grant Morrison is going to be a name to watch as one of the best writers in the business. Kudos must also go to Richard Case, whose clean, uncluttered pencils portrayed the scene perfectly. I also like the portrayal of Doc Magnus as the compassionate friend who has also experienced emotional problems. The character of Kate Chalice promises to be interesting. I hope to see more of her. Well, I guess I've taken up enough of your time, and so I will end this letter. I wish you gentlemen a long and prosperous run on this book, and I'll be watching to see what happens next. Uh, Mr. Greenberger does not reply to that one, but it was a very well-put letter. I, uh, I, I wasn't reading Doom Patrol until uh, uh, one of the trades, actually. I, didn't, uh, I wasn't reading the Kupperberg run. I, it's actually something I read far after reading the Morrison run. So I really didn't... I, I, you know, I went into the Kupperberg run more as a completionist. And it, rather than wanting to really experience it, I wanted to just know it. You know, uh, probably not the best way to, uh, or the best reason to read a book, but uh, I really wasn't so much tied up in really experiencing it. I just wanted it in my memory, so I was able, I'd be able to speak about it. Uh, now, our next letter comes from a Paul in Maryland. He says, Dear Bob, what is it about writers from England that enables them to look at characters who have been around for decades and see them in a way no one else ever has? In 1983, it was Alan Moore taking Swamp Thing, a 10-year-old character, and completely altering everything we thought we knew about the Bog Beast. And this was after he'd begun Marvel Man, a revival that has far outshone his source material. Alan Grant and John Wagner have done a respectable job on Batman in Detective Comics the past year or so. Grant Morrison has dredged up Animal Man, Animal Man for Christ's sakes, and come up with one of the best new books of the year. And now, he's doing Doom Patrol. Yow. That was his yow, not mine. Uh, He continues, Robot Man has been around for, what, 25 years? Pages 1, 2, 12, and 13 give us more insight about what it's like to be in Cliff's situation than anything I've ever seen him in before. 25 years and some 60 stories, and no one has ever really thought about the ramifications of being a human brain in a robot body. I particularly like the horseback riding scene in number one, 500 pounds of metal on an animal's back, and it's rearing, yet, uh, cute. The guy's got no nerve endings. He can't eat. God only knows what his vision must be like. That might be interesting to do sometime. Show us how Cliff sees. I get the feeling that's like a grainy TV picture and probably frizzes up on him when he's near electromagnetic fields. Think about what happens to your TV when you run the microwave. Wow, that kind of dates it, doesn't it? And there's got to be something numbing about getting limbs blown off a couple times a month and not feeling any ill effects as a result. He continues, and Larry, the negative being is intelligent. Jeez, 
but you've never spoken before. Perhaps I had nothing to say, Larry. Oh my, this is hot stuff, Bob. Really hot stuff. Last Friday, I was paging through number 19 at the shop and babbling semi-coherently as I skimmed it. What you reading, asked one of the employees. Doom Patrol, says I, and it's really good. Got a new writer. Who? Grant Morrison. You know, from Animal Man. It's really good. Oh, yes. How good is it, asked the customer. It's such an improvement. It's, it's, it's like reading 18 months worth of Golden Age Captain Marvel stories and then jumping directly into Marvel Man. And it is. So our man Paul really, really liked the new take. And, uh, and I, I, I like how, it's funny how Alan Moore and Grant Morrison, they're always kind of running neck and neck in, in my head. And, uh, it's nice to see that I'm not alone in that. It's, it's a lot of that, uh, you know, deconstructive, uh, uh, narrative, I guess, uh, where you really break these characters down and, and see what makes them tick that, uh, I think resonates with a lot of, uh, a lot of readers who perhaps, uh, you know, thought about it in their own way or maybe never thought of that sort of a situation before or that type of a story being told before. Um, you know, growing up post-crisis like I did, so much of this has just become comics to me. It wasn't as novel as it probably was to a lot of these folks in the letters pages here. So it's one of the reasons I enjoy revisiting these letters pages so much because, I mean, this really gets us into the gestalt of what was going on uh, and what people were thinking when they saw these radical new takes uh, on long-established IPs. Uh, Our next letter comes from Will in Texas. He says... Dear Patrollers, I began buying the new Doom Patrol with the first issue and stopped after five issues due to a lack of interest. I did not buy it again until the Invasion crossover came out. It was there that I read that Grant Morrison would begin scripting Doom Patrol and had plans to do away with a then-current status quo of the book. I reluctantly decided to buy issue 19 to see if there were any major improvements. In short, there were. The slow rebuilding of the Doom Patrol and their return to being regarded as an outcast team looks extremely promising. Seeing Cliff's robotic condition finally take its toll was something I've been wanting to see for a long time. If I were suddenly transplanted into the unfeeling robot shell, I doubt I would take it in stride. Watching as Cliff smashed his head against a brick wall to prove a point was one of the most powerfully disturbing scenes I've ever seen in a comic book. You see, I'd, I envy that they were able to experience this the way they did, because for me, I, you know, I, I came into Doom Patrol with a certain expectation where this was just wildly different to the folks who were reading the Kupperberg run or even, you know, into the, uh, into the uh, Arnold Drake stuff and, and whatnot. Uh, he continues. The most enjoyable part of this issue was the introduction of Crazy Jane and her 64 personalities slash superpowers. If being able to animate the inanimate is just one of at least 64 powers, she will definitely be a force to reckon with. What is going on with Larry Trainer and Dr. Poole? What is the negative energy being doing to them? Is it merging them into a single being? Won't that make the new negative person a hermaphrodite? Is that allowed in comic books? I was glad to learn that Lodestone will be returning to the patrol and that Tempest decided to leave. Both were, in my opinion, smart moves on Mr. Morrison's part. But what, what did you mean by the return, sort of, of Lone Stone on the letters page? Well, they'll find out soon enough. 
As for the artwork, Richard Case's is a vast improvement over that of Eric Larson. Eric Larson. Uh, <laughs> he's a creator that I respect a lot. Um, and it's a, he's a fellow whose artwork I enjoy a lot. But uh, actually, just yesterday, as I was doing some prep work for the uh, Source Material show, I went through the entirety of my Doom Patrol uh, collection and... I took a look at the Eric Larson stuff, and boy, uh, <laughs> I found myself really disliking uh, disliking the just the overblown cartoony uh, nature of it. And uh, that, that isn't to say I, I dislike the man's work, because I, I do. I just think he's maybe better uh, suited for you know characters with full face masks like Spider Man. Or, uh, you know, monsters, like uh, the Savage Dragon. I think he's uh, really good at what he does. It's just I don't think he was that great a fit for uh, the Doom Patrol. It might have just been, you know, too early in his career to where he really hadn't found his footing yet. But uh, I will say that I definitely enjoy Richard Case's uh, work more than Eric Larson's of, you know, 1980-whatever this is, 1989 or whatever. Um, Now, we have a reply from the editor, and he says, By now, you've seen... What has become of Larry and Eleanor? Maybe they've merged into a single-sexed being? Maybe not. That's something we're still exploring. And why wouldn't a well-created hermaphrodite exist in comics? Also, this very issue shows you why I said sort of when mentioning Rhea's return. And, uh, well, we're not going to go into that, but uh, if you buy issue whatever this is, 23, you'll find out. Our final letter comes to us from Charlie in Tucson. He says, Dear Bob, this one issue had more character development than the 18 that went before it put together. Cliff Se- bleh, sorry about that. Cliff Steele was finally humanized. He complains of his lack of humanity while expressing his humanity fully. Richard Case's art looked okay. I still think Eric Larson did the most creative pencils on this book, but Michelle Wolfman's colors on the new format paper looked great. I'm looking forward to the next issue. So there's a uh, one vote for uh, for Larson, I guess, um, and that's uh, that's about it. I mean, we get a very very positive reaction and reception to the new creative team in Doom Patrol. Um, uh, maybe I should have read some of the uh, Kupperberg letters first, just to see how folks were digging that. But uh, you know, since so much of my appearance on the uh, source material show next week is going to be you know, waxing <laughs> nostalgic about, well, actually something that I shouldn't be nostalgic for because I read it as an adult, but uh, uh, it's going to be so much about the Morrison run and how uh, important it is and how much it informed not only the Doom Patrol going forward, but just so much of the comics language, in my opinion. Um, I think stories uh, being told after this uh, took a little turn toward it. You know, it, it didn't, maybe stories didn't quite embrace the the weird and the strange but uh i think the uh the quote-unquote somber tone of doom patrol might have been contagious uh to uh the greater comics industry now that'll do it for the hot take but uh something i wanted to put out there is i was actually going to skip the hot take like i mentioned because i wanted to extend a question to folks listening here i wanted to know what your guys' hot takes were when you heard the news about Flashpoint and the New 52. Um, one of the things that I wanted to do when Reggie and I started the Patreon, which is going to go into hibernation and for a little bit, uh, 
because uh, once I figure out how to do it anyway, uh, <laughs> we're going to put the Patreon into hibernation. But one of the shows, one of the Patreon-exclusive shows I wanted to do was going to be something called Where Were You When? And I wanted to discuss big events in the comics industry or in comic stories with uh, fellow fans to find out what, you know, that, that's kind of what started this hot take segment here because I wanted to get people's gut reactions. You know, when you found out that DC was going to flush 70 years of continuity down the toilet or 70 years worth of everything down the toilet, um, how did you feel? You know, what did you expect without the benefit of hindsight? Just what were your what were your gut reactions to that? Um you know, any any big event, any big story. I wanted to discuss that with fellow fans if they wanted to come on and talk about it or if they wanted to send a letter that I could read. And, I mean, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But uh, I figured I'd float it out there because, eh, I got nothing to lose. And that'll do it for this episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths. I want to thank you all so, so much for listening and thank you even more if you stuck around to this part. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We're on Facebook somewhere. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill. Reggie is at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Uh, if you want to uh, check out the archives, you can do so at chrisandreggie.com. Uh, chrisandreggie.podbean.com is also a place you can find them, but they won't be in order. Uh, if you want to check out the site that this show is named after, you can do so at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. And while you're there, if there's a book you'd like to hear me discuss on the air, let me know and I will uh, throw it on the list. And also, if while you're there you find a book you'd like to come on and discuss on the air, let me know and we'll see what we can work out. Uh, thank you so, so much for hanging out. I uh, really enjoy visiting and uh, so long for now. See ya. See ya.